The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. The other day, Jim announced the topic was going to be babancha or conceptual proliferation. Um, I hope I don't proliferate too much. (laughs) (laughs) But part of the um, discussion today will be actually, what does this word mean, babancha? We've probably heard it. If you've been to a meditation retreat and you've suffered an attack of yogi mind, um, you've been told that this was a babancha hitting you. It's not quite what the Buddha had in mind when he talked about it. It is a kind of thinking, he said, and we have to know about it because it's the kind of thinking that keeps us mired in stress and suffering. And this, is the, this particular type of thinking is very endemic, and many people find it hard once they figure out what Papancha means. How could you live without thinking in these terms? Um, and we'll try to point out some ways that the Buddha's strategy on how to get beyond this kind of thinking. Um, there are different ways when you're looking at a term in the Pali Canon of trying to figure out what it means. One is to look at the context of the passages in the canon where it's found. And others is to go to the etymology, figuring out, okay, given the roots of the word, what does this mean? Uh, I tend to go for the context as an ideal way of figuring out the meaning of a term, because etymology can really mislead you. Like if you know the etymology for terrific, (laughs) it would give you a wrong idea of what the word actually means. Um, Other words like conscience, con, with, science, knowledge, Conscience? No, it's something else. Um, sublime? Under the lime? <laughs> the language doesn't work that way. Even words that, and there are words that change their meaning as they go through time. I remember reading some 19th century philosophers, and they were talking about a particular kind of thought being very sophisticated. And I thought, first I thought it meant what it meant to us, i.e. that it's sort of advanced and refined and very, very detailed. Well, it turned out back in those days, sophisticated meant that it's tricky and devious, um, not to be trusted. And somehow in the past, you know, two, three hundred years, the word has changed its meaning. And so when we're looking at some of the Buddhist terms, we have to realize, okay, the words can change their meaning over time as well. The notion of babancha as conceptual proliferation came from the writings of a monk named Bhikkhun Yanananda, Sri Lankan monk who wrote in the late 60s and early 70s, a book called Concept and Reality in Buddhist Thought. And he analyzed basically drawing from the etymology of the word, which he derived from a word meaning diffuse or scattered, that uh, babancha is a kind of conceptualizing that scatters your attention and basically covers your experience of reality. It kind of stands between you and the direct experience of reality. Um, However, as I said, when the term conceptual proliferation came west, it turned more into an account of the speed and amount of thoughts that flood through the mind, especially when you have attack of yogi mind. Um, I was talking to a woman a couple of weeks back who said she spent an entire uh, retreat at IMS. After reading the history of the building at IMS, she spent the entire retreat trying to figure out which parts of the building came first, which ones came later, where the orchestra played back when they had an orchestra in the, in the, in the mansion and so forth. Um, now that's yogi mind. It's not babancha. <laughs> okay. When you look at how the, the Buddha refers to babancha in the texts, there are three features that stand out immediately. It almost always occurs in discussions of how people get into conflict. 
It's the kind of thinking that leads you to get into conflict with others or to experience internal conflict. So that's the first thing to keep in mind, that this is a, a conflictive kind of thinking. Secondly, is that it's characterized by particular ways of perceiving and categorizing things. So we're not talking about the amount and speed of your thinking, but there are certain types of categories that you use when you think, certain ways of perceiving certain perceptual patterns that you impose on the world. And this is what characterizes Papancha. And the third thing that you notice is that these perceptions and categories come out of one basic perception, which is the thought that I am the thinker. In other words, once you start reading a sense of I am the thinker behind your thoughts, see yourself as the agent of the thinking, okay, you've started Babancha. You've started the categories for Babanchaizing, you might say. And then it spreads out from there. Now, based on this, I've been using more recently years um, the translation objectification. We you know, have a basic stream of consciousness and we, and we start reading objects into it. You know, I am the thinker and then from there, there's the needs of the thinker that are going to cause the conflict. So why would, it, why would make identifying yourself as a thinker lead to conflict? When you th- make yourself the thinker, you're making yourself an object. There is this being here who is doing the thinking. And to be a being, in the Buddhist terms, we'll get into some of the readings later on, I just want to give you an overview right now. To be a being is basically a result of clinging and obsession. You start obsessing about certain things and you cling them to them as you or yours. Um, of course, if you've heard about the five aggregates, you know that this is probably the thing, these are the things that you cling to, these are the things you obsess about. Um, and the word clinging is interesting because it can also mean feeding. You feed off of form, you feed off of feelings, you feed off of perceptions, uh, fabrications, and consciousness. Not only do that, not only that, but the being itself, once you've created this sense of a being, every being needs to feed. There's a little catechism for novices. It has questions, what is one, what is two, what is three, what is four, on up to ten. And some of them are pretty uh, predictable. What is five? You've got the five aggregates. What is four? You've got the four noble truths. What is three? You've got three kinds of feelings. What is two? You have name and form. The really interesting one is what is one? And it doesn't say that all beings are one. It says all beings subsist on food. This is the characteristic mark of being a being, is you've got to eat in order to maintain that sense of the being. If you identify with this body, then you've got to feed the body. You identify with certain states in your mind, you've got to feed those. The Buddha actually talks about four different kinds of food. Only one of them is physical food. The other three are contact, consciousness, and then intention. We feed off of our intentions, we feed off of sensory contact, we feed off of um, acts of consciousness. So given the fact that we need to feed, um, we need a world to feed in. So our sense of the world also gets defined by how we define ourselves. What kind of world is relative to our needs, the kind of feeding that we want want to have. I mentioned the other night, um, my brother's an alcoholic, and this relates to the fact that once you've got a certain kind of food that you want, you're in your own particular world, and even though we're sitting in the same room, we're all in different worlds. Um, brought my brother to visit the monastery one time as we're driving into the town. He picked up very quickly where alcohol was on sale in the town. Now, this is, this is not part of my world, you know. <laughs> and we drove past Fat Ivor's rib, rib rack, 
And the first question from him was, can I borrow the monastery car tomorrow night? And I said, and, uh, I no, no, you stay at the monastery. <laughs> Keep you dry for at least one night. Okay. So whatever kind of food that you begin to obsess about, that's the world you're going to live in. Now, of course, once you're feeding, that means you're going to get into conflict with other people who also want to feed on the same stuff, one way or another. You can get into conflict over material things, you can get conflict over um, views. This is going to be one thing we're going to be talking about, is how we tend to feed on views, and then this leads to a conflict, and my view has to be right, and your view has to be wrong. Um, basically, we get involved in turf wars of one kind or another. And that basically comes down to what the Buddha calls becoming, having this sense of yourself in a particular world of experience. Whenever, whenever you create that sense of self in that particular world, that's a state of becoming, and the Buddha says there's always going to be suffering there. So this is the second kind of conflict that arises from this. The internal conflict is this continual need to feed, this continual need to establish your boundaries of this particular world, and to maintain not only the being, but also that particular world, your source of food. You've got to keep track of it. The suffering here, of course, is the fact that feeding is, is a never-ending process. After you, after you eat for a while, then you get empty again, and then you have to feed up again, then you get empty again, and it keeps on going and going like this. And there's always that concern, where is the next meal coming from? And this is not only physical food, but again, emotional food as well. So the conflict here is both the conflicts we get into with other people and the conflicts we have within ourselves, based on this process of becoming, which comes out of this original perception, I am the thinker. Once you've established that identity, then you've got to establish the world in which you're going to be conflicting with other people who are also thinkers and also needing to feed that sense of being that they've created around their thinking. Now the question, is it possible to think without using these categories? And the Buddhist answer is yes. Instead of looking at the world in terms of things, you look at it as processes. There are processes coming up, happening. The primary example of this, of course, is dependent core arising. His teaching on the, on the processes that lead up to suffering. Now, a couple of the readings will be mentioning co dependent co-arising today. I don't want to get into in a lot of detail on that process, but just to look at the fact that the Buddha says it is possible to think in terms of processes and involve and avoid this kind of conflictive thinking, and eventually to gain release from suffering altogether. So you, you basically change the terms in which you're going to be thinking. It's not that you stop thinking. It's that you think using different terms in different categories. For instance, with dependent core arising, one of the salient features of this teaching is that the Buddha never talks about this as something happening within you or within a world. It's more like the process of this is how your sense of the world arises, this is how your sense of yourself arises. So you begin to look at your sense of self not so much as a solid thing, but as an activity. Something that comes about through certain processes that you can direct in skillful or unskillful ways. Similarly with your sense of the world. You know, this particular world you have out there, it's, it's, it's important to see how you create your sense of that world out there. So that you can see that as a process, and it makes it a lot easier to let go of it once you see it as a process that's coming, coming about through activity that's actually happening in the mind. And this also explains, if any of you have seen the book Skill and Questions, there's a whole series of questions that the Buddha always refused to answer. And these are, the, these are the ones that are framed in terms of 
what happens to myself? Am I going to be annihilated when I get rid of enlightenment? I've heard a number of people afraid what's going to happen to them when they get enlightened. Um, <laughs> and the Buddha always says, don't worry. <laughs> it's, it'll be good, okay? <laughs> but he refused to answer whether you continue to exist or don't continue to exist or both or neither. We'll talk a little bit about why he says that. Um, largely because these these questions are thinking in terms of babancha, they're thinking in terms of this objectification. And the Buddha wants you to get to think in different terms. Um, so you can actually see your experience as processes. Um, I'd like to stop for a minute just and ask if there are any questions on what I've said so far. Yes? Could you clarify the term objectification for me? Okay. Um, once you start identifying yourself as the thinker who's behind, behind the thoughts, it's not only turning you into a subject, but it's also turning you into an object here in the world. It's me acting in the world. I'm the one who's thinking these things, and I'm going to be acting on my thoughts in this world. So I, you turn yourself into an object. We tend, in psychology, we tend to think of objectification as, you know, the male gaze turning the woman into an object, yeah. But it's also your own self-gaze turning yourself into an object, in the Buddhist terms. And then once you've got this as an object, then it's all, everybody else there is a potential object as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, just to make for myself become clear, uh, the ancient meaning of the term papancha, I think you said, is, is not that it means proliferated no. thinking, but, but, but more, it's more like wrong view thinking and, of, of things, and for instance, in terms of um, being solid objects instead of changing processes. Right. It's basically, this is the kind of thinking the Buddha would classify as coming under a wrong view. Now, it does turn out that the Buddha himself actually will use this kind of thinking as mundane right view. Because as we find with so many other things in the Buddhist teachings, there are certain processes and certain ideas that you will have to use as tools on the path before you let them go. And the Buddha says, as long as you're stuck in babancha, I'll give you some good babanchizing (laughs) to do. I mean, good ways of thinking in terms of yourself and the questions that come up around the self. So at least it'll get get you focused on the path. And then when you you get, your focus gets more on the you know, direct experience in and of itself, then you can drop those ideas and just look at the processes that are happening. Thank you. Mm-hmm. A question over here. So how does um, this current definition you have differ from the word, the poly term manyati, which I think you um, translate as conceiving? It's uh, discussed yeah. in Majjhima Nikaya number one. Okay, conceiving is just basically holding to the idea that I am and babancha re- refers to the whole set of perceptions that builds off of that. So particularly it's more the, elaborative. It's more elaborative. And, th- and this is where the, you know, the pr- proliferation actually does come in. You can see there is, there is that side to this, that, that the concepts do proliferate out. Once you've got yourself, then you've got food, then you've got world, and then all the other questions that come about. What's the nature of the world out there? What's my nature? Uh, how do these interact? All of that comes under babancha. There is, a, there is another use of the term babancha that goes back, and it may be you know, contemporary with the Buddha, was that in the theory of how you create a work of art, 
You start out with the nimitta. You know, that, that, that sets up a red flag for a lot of meditators right there. You start out with this theme that you have in mind of what you want to get across to the audience. And then the babancha is what is how you basically turn that idea into a physical reality. Now that involves elaboration and, and involves all the intricacies of taking a basic idea and then working out all the implications. So you can see where the idea for prol proliferation or elaboration or complication, these are some of the other translations you hear, you can see where it would come in. But I think the Buddhist, the Buddhist term here is particularly in the fact that you are turning not only yourself into objects, but everything else gets turned into an object, which is where conceit, this differs from conceit. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. There's a question back here. On. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, about well, I was understanding uh, in Christian religion they they call things uh, God, and, and I'm wondering if that's like an objectification of maybe what we would consider in Buddhism the the process of, of right action, right knowledge, right you know the four noble truths. I mean, would that be like? Is God objectifying the process of life? Well, again, it's objectifying the idea that there has to be a creator out there. And this is, one of the, this is one of the questions that will grow out of, if there really is a world out there, where does it come from? What created it? And then the idea that some people say, you've got to have a creator, and other people say the idea of a creator doesn't make any sense. Either way, it's, once you start getting into the question, you're already in the territory of a bunch of objectification. So what would I tell all my religious, uh, you know, people? I mean, what's a good argument to have with them for my um. understanding? <laughs> <laughs> I've always been curious. I'm trying to get that myself, but I just wondered yeah. what your... Um, there, there's something called the Thai smile. <laughs> uh, I don't mean to be picking on my older brother too much this morning, but... My older brother does have this other, other tendency to get, want to give me advice. Even though I'm 62 years old, I still get advice from my older brother. Um, and you know, he, he's a business administration professor, and he's got a good business head, but um, that's not where I am at, okay? And so, you know, there was one time I remember particularly he was giving some advice, and subconsciously, I, don't, I was not consciously doing this, but I, I was smiling while he was giving his advice. And he said, Will you stop giving me that Thai smile? <laughs> That's your way of saying you don't, want to, you don't agree, but you're not going to get into an argument. <laughs> so. the, the BPS dictionary uses the term diffuseness. Mm -hmm. How does that fit in? Well, that, again, that's one of the possible ways of doing an etymology for a babancha. There's one poly, a poly root, I've forgotten exactly what it is, but relates to kind of diffusion or spreading. Um, but then diffuseness, I mean, what, do you have a problem with diffuseness in your, in your life? Yeah. <laughs> but it, when you look at what the Buddha is saying, does diffuseness cause conflict? Does diffuseness come out of the idea that I am the thinker? This is one of the problems of using etymology to, to find out the meaning of the word. I mean, there's another... another um, Etymology that was proposed recently. The word bancha in the babancha is the Pali word for five. So somehow this is fiving things. You know. And the explanation comes that, well, in the 
Brahmanical explanation of how the universe got started. Things start from one, and then they go into five, and then from five they spread out. Um, so they were saying that's possibly a, a way that the Buddha might have meant Babancha. But um, and what you've got with the Buddha here is saying, you're basically, you've got these five things. You've got the five aggregates, and you're trying to make one thing out of them, and that's Babancha. So that's not five thing, that's oneing. <laughs> if you want to get technical. Okay. <laughs> so again, looking, looking to the etymology for the meaning of the word, I think is a, can be very confusing. If we're talking with other people, mm-hmm. we're using terminology that, that our ordinary um, friends and acquaintances have no idea what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, your question, uh, I'm not thinking, and the, 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 a response might be, well, if you're not thinking, who's thinking? who's thinking? So when we're talking with other people, we are going to be lost in, this, in, in our entire in, uh, this conversations. Is why, mm-hmm. This is why the Buddha does have useful babancha. He's not, he's not saying that you don't get involved in it at all, but there are, there are, there are skillful ways of using babancha as you're on the path. And, and one of them is if you're going to talk to other people, you've got to use their language. And again, the, the Buddha's not saying that you would replace the idea that I am the thinker with the, 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 the idea that there is no thinker here at all. That too is babanchizing. You know, you're making a statement outside of the level of your reality, saying there's nothing behind here. Well, you don't know if there's nothing. You don't know if there is something. What you do know is you've got the direct experience right now, and he's wanting you to focus directly on that. And this is the theme we're going to be getting into again and again as we go through the day, is once you start making any kind of statement outside of your immediate experience, about assumptions about what is or what is not lying behind it, you're already in the area of Babancha. Because when the, you know, like the Buddha gives an example for inappropriate questions, the question is, do I exist and do I not exist? Both are inappropriate. Or this, the idea that coming from that is, I do exist or I have a self or I have no self, that too, the Buddha says, is inappropriate because that's both, both of those statements are babancha. So, there was a, someone who came to see a John Lee one time and he, he was getting into a, a question similar to yours. Says, this guy said his friends were saying, hey, wait a minute, if this body is not self, why wouldn't you let us beat it, beat it up? And he was at a loss. And so the John C. Lee said, tell him, I'm borrowing it for the time being. <laughs> well, Don Jeff, yes. so I was wondering, as you were talking about, rather than seeing yourself as an object, is it skillful then to, if you are going to have a tendency towards seeing a self, mm-hmm. Um, seeing yourself as a process, is there some skill in that? There's a lot of skill in that, yeah. Because you want to see well, what this process of selfing, um, how am I doing it? What kinds of selves am I creating? And um, there's a whole book on the topic. It's called Selves and Not Self. Okay. But it's, um, and the question, because the Buddha actually does recommend that there, and we'll get to them in the readings later today, that there are certain concepts of self that you want to you use on the path. And you want to be able to see, though, however, that this is a process of what he calls I-making and my-making. That you can do skillfully, because it's a kind of karma, it's something that can be either done skillfully or not skillfully, and there are various levels of skill that you can do. Yeah, because I wondered if that ties into... Sometimes I get caught up in this sense of, um, well, if there's no self, then who's responsible? 
You know, and, and that's the point when you pull out the responsible self. Of, yes, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that there, are, there is a responsible self that the Buddha would have you. You know, the self is its own mainstay. That's in the Dhammapada. But a lot of times, it's once you've got the question, the question often you know, demands a particular answer. And that's why the Buddha has you look at the question first. Is this a question worth asking or worth answering? And that would be one that, while you're practicing, you say, okay, I do care about my happiness, and I am responsible, and I am capable of following the path. That's all the self you need for that particular question. Mm-hmm. Question here? Is it working? Yes. Okay, so um, I don't mean to come from a place of um, not having Vibhaja, because I have a lot, but I wonder what one does with other people's Vibhaja. And, and I'm thinking particularly of an experience that I had when I was reading Dogen's numerous notes on how to prepare rice. Mm-hmm. It went on and on and on mm-hmm. and on. <laughs> and my, I felt like the only way I could understand it was to get into this intricacies of mind. And I understood that his motivation was mindfulness everywhere. You know, that it was coming from a deep motivation, but the mindfulness everywhere got practically got into what to do with every single grain of rice. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, it was connected to food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I've always, um, that has always been like, that particular passage in Dogen <laughs> has always been a stumbling block for me. Um, getting into the intricacies of his mind and just getting all wound up or saying, you know, this is great, and uh, I honor it. <laughs> and, uh, well, you, you can also look at it as a rhetorical strategy. You know, a lot of Dogen was talks that he gave to the monks, and you probably had some of the monks saying, why the hell am I stuck in the kitchen? You know? <laughs> 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 and he's saying, okay, look, there's a lot of deep dharma to be found in the kitchen, and if you don't believe me, I'm going to let you know. <laughs> <laughs> And so you, you have to read it in context. Uh-huh. Okay, thank you. Is that it? Okay, let's go on to the next section of the talk, introductory talk. Um, I have a couple of questions about what kind of things do we actually read into our experience that would count as babancha? Um, first is the question of whether there is a material world out there behind our experience. You've probably, if you ever had any philosophy classes in college, you know there was a debate between the realists and the idealists. The idealists saying there really is a world out there, and the idealists saying that it's, it's all a figment of our imagination. We have no proof that there's anything out there that we can, that we can um, say for sure it really exists. So that's one way. And once you get involved in that question, you're already into a bunch of. In fact, um, you could make an interesting anyone who wants to do an interesting term paper, you could talk about all of Western philosophy as one big babancha. You know? 
there's another question about who is this in here? Do I have a self? Do I not have a self? The questions that go along with that. Then there's also the question about what about the me in the world out there? Do I really have a role in the world out there? Is there any contact between me inside and the world of experience I have outside? Or is it all illusory? Um, then there's the question of, is there some sort of oneness that unites me in here with the world out there? That's a bunch of question. Or are we, are we all discrete entities with no connection? Um, these are all questions that the Buddha put aside. But it's, you know, you, you see, you know, you start thinking about these things, and these are questions, sometimes we don't even ask them, we already assume. You know, there is a world out there, I've got to, I've got to function in that world, I have my needs. That's auto, automatically assuming a lot of the assumptions that come out of a bunch of, once you make that kind of assumption, once you start thinking in those terms. A lot of it comes down to the question of what a person is, and what, what, what does make a person. And I'll just give you one example, which is very common here in the West. Um, especially in, in sort of humanist, secular humanistic circles, which is that a, ma- a person is a material object, the body, existing in space and time, and it has consciousness as what they call an epiphenomenon, or in other words, a byproduct of physical processes. And this is, a, this is one very dominant way of looking at a person. Um, what this does, though, I mean, you can also say, you know, the person is a soul which has um, picked up some original sin from some ancestor who did something really stupid when, without asking your permission at all, um, and that somehow you're stuck with the, stuck with the bill. Um, <laughs> and you have to depend on someone else you never saw who was going to save you. Um, and for many of us, the idea of maybe the person is a material object with consciousness as an epiphenomenon isn't just a bad idea after all, um, compared to some of the competition. Um, just in the aside, I was reading about a tribe down in the Amazon and there was an anthropologist slash missionary who went down to convert the tribe. First off, he had to learn their language. It turned out to be one of the m- more unusual languages out there. Didn't fit into any of Noam Chomsky's ideas of what a language should be. Um, <laughs> and he started, you know, after he learned their language a little bit, started telling about Jesus. And they said, is, is Jesus, is he a friend of yours? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, no. And he said, well, do you know anybody who's personally met him? And he said, no. And they said, in that case, we don't want to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so <clears throat> back on topic. Um, <laughs> okay, suppose you accept the idea that you are a material object, this body existing in space and time, and consciousness is a pro- is a epiphenomenon, a byproduct of a lot of physical processes. Now, what this does is that you're giving priority to you as it would be seen by somebody else. This is the way the world looks at you. They see you as a material object, and they see you moving around and behaving as if you have consciousness. Now what this does, of course, is this places a lot of limitations on what you can do and what you can can know. In fact, a lot of the postmodern critique of modern views of, of personhood come down to this, is that it's somebody outside is imposing their idea of what you are on you. And all too often we accept it, many times without question. The Buddha's critique, however, goes even further by saying any way that you're going to define yourself is going to put a limitation on you. Once you start defining yourself as I am X, I am either physical or not physical or whatever, you're going to be placing limitations on yourself. 
But in, so let's look at some of the limitations that come from this. In addition to uh, placing limitations on what you could know, it means that your consciousness is going to end. If the physical body ends and consciousness is a product of physical processes, that means death is the end of you. Um, you have no way of knowing if there's anything that exists outside of space and time. This places severe limitations on what you can have objective knowledge of. Because after all, this consciousness you have that you're experiencing, if it's a product of physical processes, what's to tell you that an idea that you have has any truth at all? Or is it just the fact that you had bad digestion, you know, that you got that idea? Um, T.S. Um, Eliot raises this question in one of his poems. He talks about a great sense of oneness and unity he was feeling. He's wondering, is this actually an experience of God, or is it just because I had a good dinner? You know? <laughs> <laughs> So how can you trust anything that comes up in this mind if it's just the backside of a physical process? And how about this subjective side that you have of this process that's result of physical, uh, physical things? Is your subjective th thinking, is it there, are there any laws that govern this at all? Or is it totally lawless? Is it totally, as we say, totally subjective? I.e. it doesn't have any basis in any objective reality at all. Are there, however, certain laws that govern the way consciousness works, or consciousness would work well? Um, psychology tries to discover what those laws are by saying there are certain patterns of consciousness, patterns of being a subject um, that are true across the board. But then the problem is how many psychological laws have maintained true across the board for the past 50 years? You know? They keep changing. And even if we did know psychological laws, what would they be able to tell you about what you should do? You know, if you want a sense of oneness, if you want a sense of belonging, if you, want to, um, if you need attachments, does that mean it's a good thing or a, bad, or a bad thing or totally neutral just because you have certain psychological needs? Is it good to feed your psychological needs or is it, is it morally neutral? And what are you going to do with these, these psychological laws once you know them? Um, one of the things that kind of unnerved me about the whole field of positive psychology is that one of the founders of positive psychology was someone who had been doing uh, tests on torture earlier in his career. You know, you've, you've probably heard of learned helplessness, you know, the experiments they did on dogs, where they would basically put a dog, put dogs in a room, and no matter where they lay down in the room, they'd get an electric shock. And then they changed the, changed the rules so that half the room did not have an electric shock and the other half did. And then, but the dogs had gotten so helpless that even if you drag them to the side of the room where they were not getting an electric shock, they'd pretty much given up. They would just lie wherever they were, whether they were getting a shock or not. Um, and then this knowledge was used, guess where? Torture. Yeah. And then the psychologist who discovered this decided he's going to found positive psychology. Now, do you trust this person? <laughs> I don't. So, but this means you learn about psychological laws, and there's all, all kinds of things you can do with them. So given that the idea that if your consciousness is just a product of physical processes, you can't really trust anything that's going on in your mind. And there, is, there really are no oughts. There really is no should at all. So, but if, you if, you if you're described in this way, do you feel that this covers everything that can be known about you? If you allow yourself to be defined this way. Um, what about your experience of your experience? Are there things about your experience that nobody else can know? And you remember there's a lot. You probably, when you were a child, the, the question that came up was, 
You know, when I see blue and you see blue, are we seeing the same blue? Does my blue look like your orange? Nobody knows. There's no way of ever proving this one way or another. This gives you a sense of at least there's something in there that is totally yours. There's not, no one else can share with you. That's a trivial example. The really important example, of course, is pain. No one else can look at you and know about how much pain you have. You know, the doctors can look at your body and say there's certain, these certain things are wrong with the body and they can imagine that you would have pain, but they don't know how much pain you're suffering. You have many cases of people, you know, the doctors run all the tests, they can't find anything wrong with you and yet you're in severe pain. So the pain is a totally subjective experience, something that um, cannot be accounted for by any of the expl explanations that your consciousness is just a byproduct of of the body. I mean, you can say, okay, if I, you know, if I, if I cut your leg, you are going to feel pain. But how you feel pain, what the pain feels like, nobody else can know. This is your own personal knowledge. Now, the study of this side of consciousness is called phenomenology. It comes from the Greek word phenomena, which means appearance. This is how things actually appear to you. And then in the West, phenomenology has gotten involved in all kinds of intricate questions about how to describe reality if you take it from this point of view. From the Buddhist point of view, there is one question that is really important, is how do we put an end to pain? Pain is something that only you experience, but you can put an end to it. And so he wants you to look directly at the experience of pain. And one of the Buddha's more radical um, teachings is that you don't have to know anything about what lies out there or what lies in here. Just look at the processes that you can see happening to your awareness and you will find enough that you can work with so you can put an end to pain. And this is why he has us look in this particular way. So when he's looking at dependent core rising, he's looking at causes as they're directly experienced. This would be a kind of phenomenology. And again, with a purpose, there is a purpose to this, which is to put an end to pain, put an end to suffering. Because as he says, when you see events simply as events, or phenomena simply as phenomena, you develop distaste for them. In other words, they lose their flavor. Because on the one hand, you're not creating a being, so you don't have the need to feed. And then you start looking at the stuff you've been feeding on in and of itself. It's like that old Far Side cartoon where a group of cows are out in the pasture, and one of them jerks their head up and says, wait a minute, this is grass. We've been eating grass. <laughs> <laughs> I was in France last year, and I mentioned that cartoon to a group of people, and they just looked at me. <laughs> that must be a very American cartoon. I don't know. <laughs> okay. But when you see things as they actually are, as events, then they, they lose their flavor. Because on the one hand, you're trying to get rid of that hunger you had for the need to feed on them, but then when you actually look at them for what they are, the Buddha's actual example is not that much different from the, the cows and the grass. It's about a blind man who, a friend of his, as a trick, gives him a dirty old rag and said, this is a beautiful white piece of cloth, take good care of it. And so he's very protective of his white piece of cloth, and he's very proud that he's got a nice white piece of cloth. And then later on, his friends and relatives take him to a doctor, and the doctor is able to give him his sight back. And the first thing he looks at is the cloth, and he says, my gosh, this is a rag. You know, I've been fooled all this time. And the Buddha is saying, the things that we feed on are just like, like that. When you actually see them for what they are, directly experienced, you're going to say, enough. Um, the word nibida, 
which is often translated as disenchantment, can also mean the sense of distaste or even revulsion. It's not so much revulsion in the sense of hatred, but just you've had enough of this. You don't want to eat it anymore. You want to just let go of it. Okay, when you don't need to feed on it, then you don't need to, you develop dispassion for the whole process that would get that food to you to begin with. And when there's dispassion, the process ends. And this is where release comes from. So this is, this is why the Buddha wants you to focus directly on experience in and of itself. Not because that's the only true level of reality, but that's the most useful level to look at for the sake of putting an end to suffering. And the Buddha's teachings are always strategic, always pragmatic. He's not trying to give you a whole picture of reality out there. Um, but he does say, you want to understand certain processes so that you can learn how to develop the things that are skillful and get, you know, abandon the things that are unskillful, so you actually can get to put an end to suffering. And you do that best by looking directly at your experience without making a lot of assumptions about what lies on either side, either inside or outside, just what you directly experience right here. Now, it does turn out, as I said earlier, that parts of the path require some uses of babancha. There are some definitions of self that the Buddha says are useful to use in the path. We're we talking about that. Also, he says, you're going to have to assume the possibility that there are mental functions that don't depend on the body. And this is where Buddhism really splits with sort of the common materialistic view that everything in your consciousness has to come from some sort of physical process. He says there are some mental processes that don't depend on the body. In fact, there's a passage he says, you know, if you, if you don't believe that, it's going to be hard to practice. So that's an assumption he wants you to make. It is possible for the body to exist in a formless realm, which just doesn't depend on, on physical processes at all. And then finally, um, he asked you to accept the possibility of awareness that would lie outside of space and time. So you're not just something in space and time, but there is a possibility of being aware of, of a dimension outside of space and time. These are some of the things that you, he wants you to be able to accept as working hypotheses. Um, of course, with a working hypothesis, the idea is that someday you can either verify it or falsify it. And he says, with the experience of awakening, you will have verified these things. Now, of course, this means that you are taking some positions as you take right view. Um, the right view, is, again, is a tool that you use, and because some of this, this does come from Babancha, that means that there will be some conflict on the path. There will be times when you find that you do have to differ with other people, or that you, there will be some conflict inside as you're working out some of the implications of this. But the conflict is not, it's not the sort of thing that people would shed blood over outside. It's just you learn, again, you learn the Thai smile. When there are issues that you don't want to get involved with, you just don't get involved. Um, and the other times when you do have to stand up and say, I don't agree with that, then then you leave it at that. But once this kind of bunchizing has performed its function, then you put it aside and you re retain release outside of space and time because you're no longer defining yourself in any way. When you're no longer defining yourself, you're not a being anymore, you don't have a feed anymore. Um, it also means that at that point, because beings are defined by their cravings and desires, it means you're not defined anymore. That's one of the distinctive parts about you know, total release, is you're no longer defined. The Buddha never is not so much interested in trying to define what a self might be and then proving that no self exists. He has you look at how are you defining yourself at any moment and see that as a process and realize, okay, you're placing limitations on yourself. Sometimes the limitations, as I said, in some parts of the path 
are limitations you have to accept for the time being because they're going to deliver you to a place so that when you can put them aside. And then finally, there's a distinction here. The question is, well, once bec someone becomes an arhan is no longer defined, does this mean that they don't have any concept of I at all? Now, there's a difference between the concept of I and the difference between the concept I am. This is important. I is a marker. I am is a metaphysical assertion. Like if you give an arahant something to eat, she will know where to put it. In her mouth, not your mouth, okay? <laughs> Unless you ask for it. <laughs> so this means that, okay, they, they, the arahants can still function. It's just that they don't, re don't require the metaphysical assumptions on either side or the babancha assumptions on either side that most of us take for granted in our ways of thinking. Any questions on that? Yes, back here. Point it straight at your mouth. Ice cream, ice cream cone. cone, straight at your mouth. Ah, green light. Yes. <laughs> when you're talking about pain, when you're referring to emotional, psychological, because not physical pain, as I understand it, that you can't just be free of physical pain if you've got it. In your well, body. we're talking about the, uh, the basically mental pain. But in either case, I mean, no one can feel your physical pain either. Yeah. Not even Bill Clinton. You know. <laughs> <laughs> when you said you could be completely free of pain, it was not physical pain. Okay, it's it, the arahant, because the arahant is no longer feeding on the body, it, it's also no, he's, he or she is no longer feeding on physical pain, which means the pain is there, but it's separate in the awareness. right behind you. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, can I be heard? Yeah, I'm wondering if, how would you, you would comment on, on two propositions. One would be that, uh, uh, let me mention them both. One would be that um, in Vipassana meditation, Vipassana practice, um, the process of, of, of cultivating uh, an inclination to investigate mm -hmm. would be exemplary of a, a constructive form of papancha. That's one. Mm -hmm. Two is that for people who are, say, in, 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 uh, have, have emotional problems or psychological disorders, those who suffer from ruminative thinking mm -hmm which is a disorder, uh, an aspect of a disorder, of, of, I believe it's a disorder, um, that that's papancha run amok, so to speak. That's, that's, uh, mm -hmm. that's an extreme form of papancha. And I, I ask these questions to see if, I, if I'm really, we, the, the, the giveaway here is, is the word proliferation of thoughts. Mm -hmm. In both cases, you have thoughts that are proliferating. In one instance, it's to be encouraged, it's to be cultivated, and in the other, it's symptomatic of underli an underlying disorder. Okay, okay you've you got two questions here. One is, um, given that objectification comes under, is basically what the Buddha is talking about in Vabancha, 
Um, when you're looking at things as processes, like a Vipassana meditator should be doing, it's just looking at it as processes, that wouldn't even count as Papancha. It would count as skillful thinking. As long as the I is not involved there, or the I am the thinker is not involved there. But in other words, it's the, it's the categories or the perceptions you're using to understand what you're thinking about. That's what determines whether something is babancha or not. You mean, it, for instance, just to dwell on that for a second, that I recognize that the, I'm, I'm experiencing the recognition of a familiar process, mm-hmm. and I remember from past occasions it's arisen under these circumstances, these same circumstances are arising again. Mm-hmm. The, there's no I involved there. It's just a noticing, a careful noticing of patterns. Okay, there may be, but then this, then of course, the idea that I experienced this a while back—that's a bunch of right there. But then it's, the but then, then, it's then it's useful. Then it's a useful process. Right. Yeah. Uh, and now, what about the other, the, the more pathological? Uh, well, it's, it's pathological. <laughs> <laughs> And a lot of that t- thinking does tend to be about what kind of person am I? Um, and we'll, it, we'll, I'll just read you a list in one of the readings we're going to get to later on. Um, these 18 craving verbalizations. Let's see. I am, I am here, I am like this, I am otherwise, I am bad, I am good, I might be, I might be here, I might be like this, I might be otherwise, may I be, may I be here, may... That's... That's Papancha. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I engage with the teachings, you know, I, I came from a background of being very interested in anthropology and sociology and epistemology, which is about social construction of reality. And I just have the impression that a lot of the Buddhist teachings are very much focused on a personal construction of reality. But it sometimes seems that I, if I'm doing meditation, I can get into this state where, okay, I'm pretty clear and processes and all that and but then as soon as I'm in front of another person mm-hmm. reality is being constructed mm-hmm. by my relationship with that person mm-hmm. or with with the culture surrounding me mm-hmm. and it seems to me that talking about psychological reality as opposed to physical reality an awful lot of it is constructed as a process by culture, and I just wanted to know your thoughts about that. Okay, well, two things. One is that the Buddha is actually giving you the tools to deconstruct it inside. So you can, the, and the question always is, where is the stress here? What's causing the stress? Look at it as a process. And you start peeling things away, and in the process of that, you're going to find a lot of interesting things that you had accepted out of your culture that you hadn't really realized that were assumptions. I know in my case, going to Thailand, and my first year as a monk, I was up on a hill meditating alone, and you can imagine the flood of stuff that came in. Um, right before I, I ordained, my mother had died, and she had left unfinished a novel. I managed to finish the novel <laughs> in my head, you know. <laughs> Fortunately, I never wrote it down. Uh, but, but, you'd, um, but then it, sometimes some issues would come up, say, from things I picked up from grade school, high school, college, family, whatever. And I go down and I talk to my teacher about them, and sometimes he'd give me some very wise advice, and sometimes he would look at me like, where the hell did you get that issue? You know? And just having someone look at me like that was really bracing. You know? 
then begin to realize, okay, that was just a social construct that I so was. So you're saying that some of these things that were of great concern to you in a like a Thai context just didn't make any sense at all. It made no sense at all. Yeah. And so that was good to give me some distance from them as well. Because what the meditation does is, um, you can also think of it as kind of like a rite of passage. This is one thing we lack in our culture, is the ability to step back from our childhood for a while and just step out and be away from society for a bit and get our heads together about what we really believe. Uh, meditation is like that. It gives you a chance to step out. Now when you're stepping back in and dealing with other people, you want to be able to, on the one hand, you want to be able to talk to them, you speak their language, but you can start seeing okay, when they are casting their, you know, their, their fishing line at you. And you just got to make yourself you know, un uncatchable. In other words, you can speak their language, but you don't have to believe their language. Jim? So you, you said that um, there's some mental processes that don't depend on the body, and I understand the, uh, the formless um, states. But uh, I think about the, um, the one teachings about the simile of the two sheaves of reed mm -hmm. leaning, so that's nama rupa and vijnana. Mm -hmm. um, and also we know in any given moment of experience all five khandhas are present. Mm -hmm. So how do you reconcile those two disparate concepts that there is rupa okay. present? Okay, remember rupa cannot, is not only just your physical body, but also sort of a visual you know, a, metal bit, a metal image can also count as a rupa. Hmm. Hmm. I'll have to think about yeah. that. <laughs> and, and, and one of the passages we're going to get in today, the question comes about, it says, wait a minute, you know, when, when a being goes from one body to another body, assuming the being being this process of attachments and everything, how does it, what's, what's the medium by which it goes? And the Buddha says it's craving. Craving is a medium. It's not a physical object. It's not a physical object. Yeah. Um, and also, you, you could ask, you could ask, and this is not in the canon, but one way of looking at it that I find useful is, you know, when you have a dream at night and then there's another dream, what went from the first dream to the second dream? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Bhante, uh, following up on that, can the uh, experience of rebirth be known? Before you're being reborn, can it? Well, you, you see the process. Well, you basically, the process, it says if you can see craving, then you can see how it's going to happen. And this is why we look for craving in our meditation to see how the mind latches onto it and where it takes us. Also, the process by which we go from one identity, I, one state of becoming, in a particular world of experience to another. It's a very similar kind of process. I mean, dreaming is, is a really good analogy because that's one of the ideal ways of thinking about how you find yourself in another world entirely. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, could you speak a little bit more about what you were saying earlier about the idea that uh, we occupy a physical space and a physical biological body and uh, somehow that uh, limits us, but it, it seems like. Uh, well, if you define yourself as only that, then that's a limitation. Okay, but w what I'm asking is, what is the utility of the, let's say, the science, the the, the, the physical sciences, the biological sciences, mm -hmm. the 
the anthropological sciences about the nature of who we are. That is, for example, that we evolved from primates. I mean, that to me sets a course on how to think about who we are that could be helpful because it, 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 it comes from uh, a body of science that is evolving, that is moving. But to me, there's a reality there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so how do you integrate that with the idea that, because one of the realities is that we do occupy a body and that, and that, we do, that, that our minds occupy space and are a function of biological processes that can, you know, a lot of it can be monitored measured and and understood in a way that could be helpful mm-hmm. in understanding the way we think because we're not tabula rasa mm-hmm. you know we mm-hmm. we are born with predilections and and things like that so how does that get integrated in a useful way to the buddhist teachings okay again you've got this body and it's interesting to know what this tool is that you have um the question is are you you know where are you in the body though they haven't they haven't they haven't found you yet <laughs> in other words, they say, where is the seat of consciousness in the brain? They haven't found it. What you can learn, though, is you can learn a lot about certain urges come on because of physical needs. But then you've got, if you've got another set of standards for... And then the, we, we raised the question earlier of whether there are kind of laws that behave within the subjective level. And one of the laws would be that, okay, if you act in this particular way, there's going to be suffering. You can foresee that there's going to be suffering. You can choose not to go along with that particular urge or that particular desire. And the whole idea that we are moral beings assumes that there is a part of us that can step back and make those choices. If we couldn't make those choices, then there would be no, there would be no moral law, and then we couldn't have moral sanctions. You know, this person was doing this simply because, okay, you know, the, that particular nerve fired, and he wasn't responsible for the nerve firing, it just happened. So, it, so you have to, there, from the point of view of the practice, we have to assume that there's more than just the physical processes going on, or consciousness is not just an epiphenomenon of the brain. Now, this is not saying that there is a self back there doing this, but the fact that there is consciousness is something that's cannot be totally explained by physical processes. So, I mean, so you can integrate the knowledge you get from anthropology and these other, I mean, this is body is, I have no problem with thinking, you know, that my ancestor was an ape, you know. Um, I know a lot of people feel insulted by that, but <laughs> I don't have any problem with that. But the question is, you know, there's more going on than just the body. There's a question over here. Hi. I I think you mentioned that sometimes it has to be said uh, that it hurts, Mm -hmm. Um, let's say, to a doctor Mm -hmm. or somebody. Um, And that uh, that feeling is somewhat private. And that's why it has to be said. Um, can, can you see why that might, that privacy of that feeling, could create a challenge to think this different way about um, 
uh, watching or being um, uh, vigilant against uh, I am or it's my pain. Okay, that's, again, that thinking of I am can be useful at certain times in the practice. But the Buddha, in, in terms, when he's dealing in terms of dependent core rising, he makes a distinction between internal and external. And from internal, we, you know, there is this tendency to create an I, but it's not inevitable. It's not necessary. In fact, part of this process thinking is just to see it. This is an internal event as opposed to an external event. That takes a lot of training. Inner space as large as outer space, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the question is, which is bigger, your mind or the universe? And your, 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 your mind can encompass the entire universe. You know? <laughs> Anything else? Yes. Could you summarize the skillful uses of papancha? Okay, the primary or ones... Or is that something for this afternoon? With, well, we're, we're going to be... I don't know if we're ever going to get to this material at all. Um, <laughs> um, basically comes down to your sense of self is usually a creation around your desire for happiness. And related to your desire of happiness, your self functions in two ways. One, as the consumer of the happiness. I am going to feel this. And the other is the producer. I have these abilities in order to bring that happiness about. And so th- these, these two functions of self function in, with regard to every desire we have. You know? And the question always is, do I have the ability to bring that about? And sometimes you say no, and then you just put it aside and you find something else. Unless it's something you really want that badly, the consumer side really wants it that badly, you're going to, you know, by hook or by crook, you're going to get this. But either way, your sense of self is divided into this consumer and the producer. And the Buddha has, says that as a producer, um, one of your reflections is that you know, other people have attained awakening. They're human beings. I'm a human being. They can do it. Why can't I? That's useful. And as for the consumer, he says, you've been working on the practice and you start getting discouraged and you want to start give, you think I might, might as well give up and go back to my old ways. They say, well, what do you have in your old ways? What kind of happiness did that promise? How about the promise of this, uh, true happiness? When you, don't you love yourself? Don't you love this consumer who's going to get to experience this happiness? So that's a useful, that's a useful use of the self as a consumer. Um, the other one, of course, I asked Gil last, uh, last January if he, if, I wanted, if he wanted me to cover Babancha this Saturday or uh, Rebirth. He said, oh, Babancha, of course. Um, <laughs> But it turns out that some useful babanchizing is about rebirth. This is why I said, you know, the, the, the idea that there are mental processes that are not dependent on this body. So those are the three main ones. Okay. Any other questions? Okay, let's look at the readings. Okay. Okay. First one.